But be that as it may, um, in Psalm chapter 8, David uh, has changed his entire focus. You know, in the past we've talked about uh, not only David's situation, but, you know, his... uh, or, or, or his physical situation, but we've talked about his, his spiritual dilemma. Uh, we've talked about his emotional distresses that were evidenced according to David in various ways. He talked about wetting his bed with, you know, with tears. We talked about his, uh, you know, his bones, you know, just the, the distress was just affecting every part of David. But but then we come into Psalm chapter 8 and, and, the, and, and David's focus changes entirely uh, from one of despair, from one of praying that, that God would just do bad things to his enemies, uh, he comes from from feeling despondent uh, and and focusing, you know, on the trouble that he's facing all the way to where he begins to praise God. Now, it's kind of when when you read these chapters and you keep in mind the context of it. You know, it's, it's kind of amazing the depths of despair that David can be in. And then in, in chapter 7, you know, he, you know it, his, it, he, his attitude uh, changes more than once. You know, he, he, uh, he talks about trusting God. He talks about the the righteous reign of God. And, and then in, in chapter 8, it's almost like the entire scene just changes. And, and David goes from despair and despondency, you know, to, to a psalm of, of praise and exaltation, you know, to God. Now, I, I don't know if, the, if in the context of chapter 8, the rebellion has been broken and put down. I, I don't know that. I know that the context of chapter 9, it seems to be because, uh, because David praises God for His judgment. But I I don't know if it's been broken in chapter 8. Now, there's a couple of things come to mind, you know, to me. Uh, If it has been broken, then Psalm chapter 8 could be a song of praise and David speaking of the glory of the Creator and the the excellency of His name, 
because David has come out on the other side of this and and then uses chapter 8 as more of a launching pad to 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 get into chapter 9 where um you know where he he praises God for his judgment um and if that's the case that's good if the rebellion has not been put down by this time, then it illustrates to, to us of how that, you know, people can go through traumatic experiences and even go to the depths of despair that David did uh, during the rebellion. But yet in the middle of that, before the final chapter of all of that has been written, yet David has the ability to turn around and, and show that he has a, a bigger understanding of who God is and the name of God in the middle of trying circumstances. Amen? So, so whether, whether it's over or not, that there's lessons for us either way. You know, in, in the middle of despair, you should be able to, to praise and worship God. Amen. Amen. But that's going to require, as David seemed to, to understand in... In this chapter, it's going to require that you have a, a different view of God than you do of your circumstance. You know, because, you know, what you focus on, you know, tends to be magnified. You know, when, when, when the, the psalmist said, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. You, you can't magnify God any bigger than He already is. Amen? Amen. Amen. You, you, can, you, you can put a magnifying glass to uh, a piece of paper to enlarge the print on that paper but it, it doesn't actually enlarge the print of that paper or on the paper the magnifying glass just changes your perspective of the print that's on the page amen amen no it has everything to do with perspective is how how you see God. When when uh, when the writer said, "Oh, magnify the Lord with me," to to magnify anything is has to do with a change of perspective. It's just like I said about the magnifying glass. I've I've got handwritten notes this evening, and I and and of course, you know. I, wear, I have to wear readers because my eyes are not as young as they used to be. 
And what it does is magnifies the print on the page. But it doesn't make it larger. The print is the same size as it was when I wrote it. All it does is changes my perspective of the size of the print. So when you change your perspective of God, really the idea is whatever you focus on is what's going to be magnified or exalted. The more you focus on on detrimental problems, it seems the larger they become in your mind. Because that's your perspective. That's all you see. That's all you think about. That's on your mind. So when you have a change of perspective about God and, and you exalt Him, you don't make Him bigger. How, how much bigger can, can God be? He, he fills the universe. So you magnifying Him doesn't make Him bigger than He already is. It's a change of uh, perspective. It's a change of how you see God compared to how you see everything else. And so, so David... In chapter 8, it's not that David all of a sudden comes to to an understanding and a realization of the greatness or the glory of God the, the Creator. It's just that David has changed how he sees Him in this particular instance. Because God don't get bigger and He don't get smaller. He's the same. He's omnipresent. He's all-powerful. He is omniscient. He knows everything. And that doesn't, that doesn't get larger and it doesn't get smaller. He's the same. How you see Him changes from time to time. Your focus. If you're, if you're in, in a, uh, some type of, uh, of circumstance or situation that you don't think that, you know, your, your, your perception is, I don't know how this is going to change, then your idea about God is going to change. Because if you don't have if you don't have the perspective that God can change anything, God can move in any situation. God can heal any disease. God can turn anything around for my good. God will protect me. God will help me. See, that's David's perspective. David understood the righteousness of God, which the righteousness of God, as I've stated in the past, has more to do with 
God's righteousness or God being righteous. There's various aspects of the righteousness of God. And one of those is the protection of His people. David understood that. So when David is in despair, he's running through the range of every human emotion. But, but then on the, on the back side of that, he begins to exalt God because he is the creator of everything. And he begins to exalt the name of God. He begins to see a different different perspective. So, so let's let's look. Psalm chapter 8, the psalmist leaves the world of enemies, of wicked people, and distorted justice of Psalms chapter 3 through 7. So in this psalm, David's attention is not on the rebellion of Absalom or other enemies. During this period, his focus is on the glory of the Creator. This psalm is significant in its approach to creation and its application to the Messiah. This psalm is not messianic in the narrow sense, and in the sense that it is a, a what is called a mess, messianic psalm in the sense that it, it uh, prophesies or, or predicts a future Messiah. This psalm is not messianic in that sense, but has application in the sense that Jesus is fully human and has realized God's expectation of humanity and holiness. So while, while the, the Messiah is in view here, by application, this is not a messianic psalm. But David, in, at least in the first verse, he, he looks at God as, as a creator and, and the name of God. So, so let's look at it. He said, O Lord, our Lord. Now, I want you to notice the distinction or the difference in words there. In the words, Lord. You say, well, they're the same word. They're, they're the same word with different meanings. David says, oh, Lord. That, that first Lord is in all capital letters. That means that when David says, oh, Lord. In, in the Hebrew, he's saying, Oh, Jehovah. Or, Oh, Yahweh. That, that is in reference to the God of everything. 
When, when you see that word Lord in the Old Testament, it, 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 is, it is making reference to, to the fact that God that is referred to here is the creator of everything that has been made. The creator is the object of David's celebration in verse number 1. God, creator, redeemer, is Lord, small letters, over His people. He, he is Lord. He is the Creator. He is the Almighty God. He is the All-Powerful. He is the All-Knowing. He is the Ever-Present God. And David said, O oh Lord, our Lord. That, that word Lord, the title, our Lord which that Lord in the Greek is Adonai, is an, ad an address to God as King. He's our governor. He is our ruler. So in these four little words that opens this chapter, O Lord, our Lord, Let's us know that David is appealing to the Creator and saying the Creator is our King. He's our ruler. He is our governor. And you say, well, you know, that, that goes without saying. You know, why did he have to use that, that second word, Lord? Because that second word, Lord, has to do with kingship, as governorship, as rulership from a human standpoint. And so David is saying, O oh Lord, our Lord, he is recognizing when he goes and he calls on the name of God, he is recognizing that the God that created everything that exists is our king, our ruler, and he is our governor. Amen. Does it make sense? He is our king, our ruler, and our governor. I want you to notice Psalm chapter 97 and verse number 5. Chapter 97 and verse number 5. David said in another psalm, he said, The hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. What's significant about that word, Lord? He's talking about the Creator. He's talking about the all-powerful God. And he said, the hills 
melted like wax at the presence of the Creator. At the presence of the Lord. Notice that word, Lord. And that means what? King. King. Ruler. Governor. So, so David saying the hills melted like wax at the presence of the Creator, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. What David is saying in Psalm 97 is not only did God, did God create the hills, not only did God create the whole earth, He is also the King, the Ruler, and the Governor. Of all of the hills he created, and of all of the entire earth. Amen? Psalm 110 and verse number 1. Let's look. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Notice the word play here again. The Lord, the Creator, said to my ruler, my king, my governor, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So to speak of God as Lord in that small letter sense was an ascription of kingship in the Old Testament. There are times in the Old Testament you read about Lords, small letter L-O-R-D-S. That, that's talking about human lords, rulers, governors, uh, those that would be in some position or power of authority. But when you have that capital L and the rest of the of Lord is is uh, in lowercase letters, it's talking about God as being ruler, king, governor over whatever. Whatever the context is. And when you see it in all caps, He, the Creator, the King, has endowed, uh, has in, endowed the earth with glory. It is what David is saying. So, O oh Lord, our Lord, O oh God, O oh Creator, Almighty God, our King, our Ruler, our, go- our Governor, how excellent is your name in all the earth. David does mention 
the name of the Lord. How excellent is your name. The, the excellence of God's name radiates from His work on earth and heaven. That word excellent is simply defined as mighty. Some translations of, of the Bible says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. And, and that would be a proper interpretation. How majestic is your name in all of the earth. Because God's name is excellent. God's name is a mighty name. And God's name is a majestic name. And so David is saying the name, the name of God is excellent or it is majestic in what? In all of the earth. So David is saying that there is no place on the earth that God has created, that His name is not a majestic name. Now, the world can do what it wants to do with the name of God. But I'm going to tell you right now, you're not going to change the majesty of the name. Amen. You're not going to change the excellency of the name of God. It's impossible. It's impossible. His name has been exalted above what? His name is mighty. What is his name? Jesus is his name. And His name is so majestic that Scripture said there's coming a day that every knee is going to bow. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee. Why? Because... Because there is majesty in the, in the Creator. He really is king of everything. Amen. He really is governor of everything. He really is Lord of everything. And His name is majestic in all of the earth. So, so speaking of the majesty of that name, Psalm 148 in verse number 13. Says it like this. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For His name alone is excellent. His glory is above the earth and heaven. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is excellent. 
Let me tell you, there, there is no other name that carries the name, that, that carries the excellency of the name of our God. Amen. That there is no other name that carries with it the power of the name of our God. Amen. Nor the authority of the name of our God. Luke said it well that there, there is... There is none other name given. Means you've not been given a name. You've not been given another name under heaven among men whereby you must be saved. There's not another name given. There's only one name that has the power to say, hey, that's how majestic His name is. That, that's how excellent His name is. That's how mighty His name is. There is no other name given under heaven among men whereby you must be saved. It is not there. There is no name that anybody could call. Amen, because there, there's no name that carries the excellency or the might or the majesty of the name that David is calling upon when he says, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. None other. So... David didn't know the name Jesus, no. But he knew, he knew his name as, he, as it had been revealed to the Jews at that particular time. And he still said that name is majestic. So, the name of God is a royal attribute denoting his victories. I, I'm going to show you how, how majestic His name is in all of the earth. Go to Exodus chapter 15 and verse number 6. Because again, the name of God is a royal attribute. Denoting His victories. So in Exodus chapter 15... In verse number 6, the Bible says, Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, has dashed in pieces the enemy. Now, what, what's the context of that? Israel has just come out of Egyptian bondage. They have crossed the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army had, has tried to follow them on dry ground. And, and you can read of, uh, of how God allowed the waters to come back, you know, together in the entire army. And, and this, this is the praise of Moses to God. Be, because of the victory that God, listen, He recognizes. Moses even recognizes the fact that if God didn't give us victories, and if He wasn't king, and He wasn't ruler, and He wasn't governor, and His name wasn't majestic, 
Because again, the name of God is a royal attribute denoting His victories. Amen. So He said again, He has dashed in pieces the enemy. He has taken care of every one of our foes. He has dealt a death blow to the mighty army of Pharaoh. And He did it on our behalf. It's a royal attribute. Talking about his victories. Amen. 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 Notice the words of Moses is not too dissimilar to the words of David in some of his prayers. But here Moses is praising God. What's he done to the enemy? He dashed them in pieces. God did this. God did this. See, again, this is some of this Old Testament language that hard for us to comprehend. Like pastor friend told me recently, he said, he said, I'm going to tell you something about God that we don't understand. He said, people... He said, I've heard people say, well, when it comes to people in the world, you got to hate the sin, but you love the sinner. God hates the sin, but He loves the sinner. He said, I told the church that was nothing but a bunch of Facebook hogwash. He said, because the Bible is very emphatic. God hates the sinner. It's emphatic. It's there. He said half of them got googled and turned red in the face. And he said the other half was asleep. He said, because if the other half had been awake, they'd have probably got up and walked out. He said, but the bottom line is, we don't understand God's perspective of hate. We don't understand God's perspective of wrath. We think God is just this kind of thing that, you know, just accepts anything and anybody. And I've confessed my, my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, I'm... And I'm going to make it. You know, I'm, I'm going. I'm going to make it. You know, my name's on the, on the church roll now. I'm, I'm going to make it. But that's not the problem with that. It's not Scripture. And, and we don't understand. We don't understand God's anger when God gets mad. Does God get mad? Do you get mad? Do you get mad? All right, if you get mad, God gets mad. Well, how can you say that? Because the Bible says I was created in His image. So the full range of emotions that I can have, He has. You understand that? It makes sense. God, God ain't sitting up there playing patty cake with sinners. God's not sitting on, on His throne or if He's on His throne and He's not looking down, you know, at, at all of the sin that's going on in the world and saying, 
Bless their little hearts. They, they just don't know any better. Bless their little hearts. You know, they'll be okay. I, I love them. It's okay. I, I love them. Oh, no, 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 no. I, a thousand times no. Moses said, Moses said, and you read it, that when it came to our enemies, God literally dashed them to pieces. You know, can, can you understand? Can, can you think that the Red Sea, the Red Sea, God parted the waters? They stood up. They parted. Anywhere from, depending on what historian you read, Anywhere from three to three and a half to five million Jews walked across there. And the Bible said they walked on dry ground. Now think about this. Think about the power of God that Moses is praising. That, that's the bottom of that sea had been underwater. I guess since creation. It, it was muddy. It was murky. And, and yet the Bible said they walked across on dry ground. Now when the Egyptians started crossing, something began to happen because the Bible said their chariot wheels began to bog down. All of a sudden that dry ground wasn't dry anymore. And, and the horses... Start bogging down, and the and the foot soldiers start start getting knee deep in mud now because because something. And can you imagine? I don't even have any idea how tall those two bodies of water were that stood up on a heap and allowed the Hebrews to. But can you imagine the force when those two bodies of water came back together? Can you imagine the trauma on the human bodies? Could it be that when Moses said, is talking about the, the name and the royal attribute of the name of God that denotes his victories? Could it be that Moses and those other Hebrews when they were standing on the other side of the Red Sea, when that came together, after a period of time, started seeing pieces of body float to the surface. He's dashed our enemies to pieces. That's, that's not only denoting the power and, and the victorious nature of, of God. But that's also a picture of what, what God can do with people that oppose His people. So we, don't, we, don't, we don't understand this. We don't understand God's wrath. We don't understand God's anger. 
You know, when, when, when God, when God gets mad, we don't, we don't understand that and see the, and, and see the world, especially in our culture. Oh, God, don't get mad. What you talking about, preacher? You lost your mind. I ain't never heard tell of such. Well, you might not have ever heard tell of such, but what I would recommend that you do is pick up that Bible and start reading that Bible. Because that Bible is very emphatic that God runs the same range of emotions that you and I have. And the reason that you and I do is because we have been created in the image of God. Make sense? See, that's why the Bible says, that's why the Bible says, it's a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of a jealous God. It's dangerous. Dangerous, the Scripture said. That's not a place that you want to be. But because God has already said in numerous places, I, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Usually that jealousy is spoken of in the context of the idolatry of His people. What it's saying is, you might ought to be careful when you put anything before me because I'm a jealous God. And it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hand of a jealous God. See, the world, and I, 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 I got to try to move on here, but I'm, just, I'm hung up here just a little bit. The, the world, after the rapture of the church, is going to experience what happens when God is angry. All that old hell, fire, and brimstone that rains down out of heaven, God did it. All those boils that come on people, God did it. The the heat that, that is going to scorch the skin of people, God did it. Sometimes we might need to adjust our view of God. And it's not that you live for God out of fear. I don't live for God out of fear. I live for Him. I don't have anything to fear of Him if I'm living according to His will. I don't have anything to fear from Him. But but if I start deviating and get out of out of His Word and out of His commands, you might ought to fear. So His power, His, his, his attribute denoting His victory. The name of God is a royal attribute denoting His mighty judgment. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse number 8. 1 Samuel chapter 4. And verse number 8. 
Woe unto us. Who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Now, now wait a minute. That's not God's people saying that. Do what? That's not God's no, it's not. But what, what they are recognizing here it is, is the fact that, that the name of God is a royal attribute denoting His mighty judgment. And these plagues that God sent on, on, the, on the Egyptians was nothing more than the judgment of God. God did it. God did that. Moses, stretch your, stretch your rod out over the, the Nile River. Moses stretches that rod out. That river turns to blood. Every stream, every pool, every cistern in the land of Egypt turned to blood. God did that. His mighty judgment. Psalm chapter 76 and verse number 4. Psalm 76 and, and 4. Thou art more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. Asaph said, The name of, of God is a royal attribute denoting His law. In Isaiah 42 and 21. Let's look there very quickly. And I'm, I'm drawing to a close. Isaiah 42 and 21. The Lord is well pleased for His righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. The name of God is a royal attribute denoting His rule over creation. Psalm chapter 93 and verse number 4. Psalm 93 and verse number 4. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. He's over it all. He's over it all. Psalm chapter, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter 1 and verse number 20. And, and this is the last. His na the name of God is a royal attribute denoting all creation reveals the power and the glory of God's name. Romans chapter 1 and verse number 20. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Paul here is talking about the natural or the general, however you want to term it, the natural or the general revelation of all the peoples of the earth, specifically the Gentiles. And he said there's not going to be any excuse. 
Because creation says something about the power of the Creator and, and the majesty of the name of the Creator. While I understand that natural or, or uh, general revelation does not reveal to, to any man the specifics of salvation, but it, what it will do is it will reveal enough about the knowledge of God as a creator that He will begin to seek to understand and begin to ask questions about things that He sees or she sees that they do not understand. But even, even if on the flip side of that, there be those that, that look at creation and say, you know what? There's got to be a higher power somewhere. There's got to, there is a reason for all of this. But even if they do not seek God, and Paul said, they are without excuse. So nobody, nobody on the face of this earth, you say, well, what if I ain't never heard the gospel? They got general revelation. How is it that God can send people to hell that never had a chance? According to what Paul is saying, every man's got a chance. Every man has a chance. And if they will seek God... God will be found of them. Amen. It's kind of it's kind of like this, you know. People, people in in our culture, especially, let, let me turn this off. I want to draw your attention to a familiar passage of scripture and. I'm going to endeavor to, to not preach lengthy today, uh, but I do want to bring you something that uh, is, is pertinent. You've heard it before, but we need to hear it again and again and again and again. And uh, my wife and I were talking yesterday and uh, I can't remember the context of, of our conversation, but uh, she made a statement and, and I responded and, uh, and said, that's, oh, I know the context. We, we were talking about uh, time spent in the Word of God and in prayer. The context was the failure uh, of ministry today. And... Um, a lot of that failure is time spent uh, in diligent study to the Word of God and time spent in prayer uh, that God would help and God would illuminate our minds and, and help us to understand. And, and, uh, and I said, preachers are no exception. You know, and that's, that's why God told Moses concerning the law to rehearse it in the people's ears. 
you know, you tell them. You, you tell them again. And, and you tell them again. And you tell them again. And you tell them again. And, and you keep on telling them because the, the point, I believe, of God is, you know, God being the creator of everything. He knows the failures of the human race. He knows if we're not reminded of some things over and over and over again that we tend to forget some things that, uh, that we shouldn't forget. And so uh, being in the time that we're in and um, the, the busyness uh, of schedules uh, and, and all of the interruptions that we allow into our lives to the point that we, uh, we, we don't spend the time with God that we need to spend to overcome in the manner that we need to overcome in this last day. And, and before I read my text, I'm going to just I'm gonna tell you what I've, I've started doing. I've, I've started not letting anything interfere in my devotional time with God. Somebody calls on the phone, the phone's just going to ring. And uh, somebody, somebody texts, it's going to go unanswered, you know, until I get to the place, whether it's in Bible reading, Bible study, or, or prayer, that, um, that I feel like, you know, that, that um, you know, the Spirit of the Lord you know, would, would release to do other things. You know, then I'll pick up those other things. But I, I've got to get back to the place that my time spent with God is guarded. Amen. And it's guarded very, very closely. And I've, I've preached about her numerous times, you know, and just maybe it just bears re- repeating just uh, momentarily here. I've told you about, you know, my, my old granny that didn't matter what she was doing. If, if there was the urgency to pray, she dropped everything she was doing. And, and she got down before God and prayed. And she prayed until she felt that God would release her. And uh, uh, as people of God, that should have never changed in us. But, but as a whole... It, it has because we get caught up and it's easy. It is really easy you know, to get caught up in a myriad of things. And, and, and I'm not saying that they're unimportant. There are things that we get caught up with that are important things. But, but we need to understand and, and live uh, according to, to the fact that our relationship with the Lord is the most precious thing that we have. Amen. Amen. And uh, and so let's let's guard that. So I'm I'm going to turn your attention to Matthew chapter 26, and I'm going to begin with verse number 36 here, and read down through verse number 40. And um, you know we we've talked about binding together in prayer. Uh, when I was making an appeal to you for uh, the needs of those among us, and I want to, I, I want to continue uh, 
with that and, and talk to you about the intensity of intercessory prayer. And, um, and, and, and I'm not going to go really deep into this this morning. I don't have the time, but, uh, but we've studied about intercessory prayer and what it is, so I'm, so I'm not going to, to go back and rehash. But uh, Matthew records, uh, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? And I, I will stop there. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. With, with all that has been taught on prayer in the history of the New Testament church, prayer remains the supreme need of the hour. I'm going to say that again. With all that has been taught on prayer in the history of the New Testament church, prayer remains the supreme need of the hour. Jesus, uh, I believe it was on two occasions. Once in the beginning of His ministry and then once in the end walked into the, the temple. And he began to overturn the, the changers of money's table. He began to, to release sacrifices that were being sold in the house of God and, and braided a whip and, and drove them out of the house of the Lord. And with, with this statement, he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. In one, in one instance that's recorded, he added, of all nations. But you have made it a, a den of thieves. And so the, the idea of the Lord here is, is while that there are other things that happen in the house of God or, or in the service, as we call it, the, the service of the Lord when we come to worship. While there are other things that happen in, in the house of God, you know, we, we worship the Lord, we praise Him, we sing praises unto the Lord, we exalt Him, 
We, we hear the Word of the Lord taught and or preached. And, and all of that is well and good. But, but the Lord's, the idea, I believe, of the Lord when He drove them out of the temple with the exclamation that He made was the idea that the house of God is to be known primarily as a house of prayer. We do find this illustrated uh, on in the book of Acts, you know, after the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter uh, 3, the Bible said that Peter and John went to the synagogue at the hour of prayer. It, it was time to pray. And, and they weren't going to, you know, hear worship songs. They weren't going to hear the Word of God exhorted. They went there with the express reason of praying. And they, they went to pray. So still in the day that we live, prayer remains the supreme need of the hour. Here's what I believe. Without prayer, nothing else matters. Amen. I'll say that again. Without prayer, nothing else matters. And so, and so we can understand through the teaching, the words of Jesus, the examples that we have set before us of the apostles that prayer remains the supreme need of the hour. There has never, nor will there ever be, a revival which has not been preceded by much intercessory prayer. Now we read in history of, of great revivals that have transpired uh, through the course of time. And, and we read of the move of God among vast um, amounts of people. You know, back in the 1700s and the, the 1800s, the early 1900s. And we, we've heard and we've read about the Welsh revival. And, and we've heard of, of other great spiritual awakenings. But when you read the history of that, it was... It was it all always was preceded by great amounts of intercessory prayer on the uh, through the, the people of God. There was they understood a need. They recognized that there were people who were lost that needed to be evangelized. There were people that before evangelistic efforts were ever made that the hearts of people needed to be prepared to receive the word of the Lord. And that was the reason for great amounts of time that was spent in intercession for, for those people. Now, when Jesus in Matthew 4 was uh, entered into the wilderness and was tempted of the devil, then he came out of that wilderness experience with power, the Bible says. And he instantly began gathering leaders. But, but upon uh, but, uh, preceding him beginning to gather leaders 
out of that experience, we find him spending all night in prayer. Amen. He had an all night prayer service. How many has been in an all night prayer service before in the past? Amen. I'm going to tell you, all night prayer meetings, can that all night can get very long before it's all said and done if you're trying to pray all night. But there were times that we do see Jesus spending all night in prayer. Amen. And let me and, and, and let me make this statement before moving on. If we see the Lord spending vast amounts of time in prayer, we know who He was and is. He was God manifested in flesh. He was God that was walking around in a human body just like ours. And if, and if God in flesh understood that to do what He came to do and to affect the lives that He came to affect. He needed to spend vast amounts of time in prayer. How much more should you and I today understand who are not God manifested in flesh even though we have the Holy Ghost and the power of the Holy Ghost in us it does not make us little gods or demigods. But I would present to you this morning that if Jesus Christ saw the need to spend vast amounts of time in prayer, how much more should you and I in 2023 understand we must spend more time in prayer than we currently spend? Amen. Amen. One of the greatest failures of the church is time. Somebody say time. Time spent in quality prayer. And when I talk about quality prayer, I'm not talking about getting down for two or three minutes and just saying our accolades to the Lord and then we get up and go about our way. I'm talking about time spent in quality prayer. Prayer. I'm talking about time spent in prayer. No matter what about a time it is that you, when you begin to pray, you continue in prayer until you feel a sense of release from the presence of God. Amen. That would allow you to get up and go about your daily affairs. I'm talking about time spent in quality prayer today. Amen. I do believe that the Lord, there are times that the Lord calls people to pray at different times. But when, when you pray, amen, and you, and you get a hold of heaven, and you get a hold of the hem of the garment of the Lord, and you touch God, I'm going to tell you there, there's going to be a sense in your mind and in your spirit when that prayer has accomplished what God intended for it to accomplish. And I, I, wanna, I want to, 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 uh, to present to you this morning that the idea that you need to pray until you get that sense. Amen. Pray until the job is done. 
Pray until you get a release from the Lord. Amen. That, that you have touched. And I'm telling you, if you pray to that degree, you'll know when that feeling comes. Amen. You'll know when there is that sense of release. Amen. But again, one of the failures of the church is time spent in quality prayer. Amen. And again, if Jesus understood the necessity of time spent, been in prayer and him being God in flesh how much more do you and I need to spend that time in prayer today we need the help of God we need the help of God the ultimate expression of intercession was found in a garden that was called Gethsemane now I'm going I read my text in Matthew but I'm going to Luke's account and, and I'm going to draw uh, at least one, one very important point uh, here about intercession. And that's all the time we'll probably have. But in Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46, I, I, want, to, I want to read this account that Luke says, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed and his disciples also followed him. I want you to notice first and foremost in this account that Luke said it was customary for the Lord to go to the Mount of Olives with the express reason of praying. He went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and he and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray! that you may not enter into temptation. I want you to notice again what Jesus is saying. You need to pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling on the ground. When he rose up from prayer and he came to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The one point that I want to make this morning is the fact that intercessory prayer is sometimes agonizing prayer. Amen. Intercessory prayer is sometimes agonizing prayer. Luke said in, in verse number 44, And being in an agony, somebody say agony, being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. There was something about the intensity of the need of prayer in the mind and the spirit of Jesus Christ at this particular incident that he became in an agony. And he prayed more earnestly. I noticed that that word agony has to do with a state of great mental and emotional grief 
and even anxiety. If we look at what's being said here, then Jesus was in a state of great mental and emotional grief and maybe even anxiety at at what he was facing in the very near future. At the time of this prayer, Jesus was facing his passion as it is known. He was facing the mock trial. He was facing the fact that he was going to be betrayed by one of the very ones that he chose to be a disciple. He was in, in, in anxiety because he was going to be hauled into Pilate's hall in a mock trial. He was going to be accused falsely. And he was, going, he was going to have sins passed upon him to be crucified on a cross of crucifixion. And I'm going to tell you, in your flesh, in your mind, that would create anxiety in the minds of any man or woman that was facing this. And, and he prayed. He prayed in agony. He prayed in that mental and emotional grief. He prayed in that state of distress. He prayed in that state of anxiety. And he prayed, Oh, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Let it be gone. If there's some other way to accomplish what needs to be accomplished, let it be done. But if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. We know and Jesus knew that it was not going to be any other way. Because we know that He knew again the reason for His coming. He came to die. He came to be the sacrifice for sin. He came to be that, that, that blood offering that would be willingly offered up for the demands of a just God. But yet in, in His humanity, there was great mental and emotional grief at what He was facing and and he and and he even experienced that anxiety amen so intercessory prayer is often agonizing prayer it is prayer that's going to be taxing on your mind. It's prayer that will be taxing on your spirit. It's, tax, it's a prayer that will be taxing on your physical body. Be because when he was in agony, Luke said he went beyond that. And he prayed more earnestly than just being in agony and being in anxiety and emotional grief. But there became there came a greater intensity to his prayer and he began to pray more earnestly to the degree, Luke said, that his sweat were as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, I don't recall the condition that this, is, that this has been named by medical science, but medical science will tell you that a human being can be in such agony and in such a state of emotional grief that that blood does ooze through the pores of the skin. But it did more than that. 
in the body of Jesus because Luke said his sweat were as great drops of blood and they were falling to the ground. It was to the degree. I I want you to try to get into your mind's eye the earnestness of prayer that that Luke is witnessing here. That Luke is, is maybe a witness to and seeing this. And, and it had such an impression upon Luke that he, he recorded it in great detail. His sweat were as it was draped drops of blood that was falling to the ground. Amen. But there was something in the mind and the Spirit of Christ that pushed him to that degree of prayer. And and I tell you, I tell you what I believe it was. It, he was beginning to feel the weight of the sin of the entire world as it began to press upon him physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And the weight of that drove him to the degree of prayer that he began to pray and the emotion that he began to experience it was the burden of all of that that drove him to the prayer that he prayed oh father if it's your will let this cup pass if there's a if there is a prayer that you pray that Paul talks about in the in the in his writings to Romans, Romans chapter eight, verse twenty six and seven. The Amplified Bible says it like this: There's a groaning that's too deep for words. There's groanings that you don't understand. There's groanings that that you can't utter. That just words. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever prayed and and you were praying, you know, I mean, it, it, it really doesn't matter what you were praying for or about. Whether it was some person, some need, some circumstance, it really doesn't matter. But you're praying in your known language. You understand what you're praying or what you're saying. You you understand, but there but but there it comes a point in that prayer that all of a sudden that it seems that words that you understand are not adequate to express what you are sensing in your spirit. You ever prayed to that degree? Anybody? You, you ever prayed until, to the point that just the words that you were saying just wasn't getting the job done? That there needed to be a different level of prayer. That there need to be a greater intensity of prayer. And that's what Paul is saying to the church here in the book of Romans. There is a groaning that's too deep for words. That there's an utterance that you don't understand. Amen. And you get to the place in your mind, in your spirit, that you that you don't understand because I'm telling you, there is something about your spirit. Your spirit can understand on a deeper level than your mind can even understand. And Paul again said, there is a level, there is a groaning That is too deep for words. I just can't vocalize it. I can't put it in words that I understand.
Paul is talking about a level of prayer and an intensity of praying that we all need to become reacquainted with. That intensity to where we have groanings that are too deep for words. You ever heard anybody? It's not too common anymore. But have you ever heard anybody praying? There was no words that were coming out of their mouths. It was nothing but groans. Just groans. That's all it was. Just groans. What, what is that? That's the intensity of prayer that Jesus gives us the example of. That's the intensity of prayer, amen, that goes beyond just the wish list that we give to the Lord. That's an intensity of prayer that goes beyond, amen, just vocalizing these things. And, and once we're fresh out of ideas of saying anything to the Lord, then we get up and go about our way. I say again today, in the hour that we live and what we're facing as a people of God in our nation and in our world we need to reacquaint ourselves with the level of the intensity of prayer that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8 there are times that we frequently need to get to that level of prayer where there is groaning that is simply too deep for words in this prayer in this level of prayer, all mental faculties are bypassed and from inside of the prayer comes uncontrollable groaning. That's what Paul is saying. It's uncontrollable groaning. I talked to one man just recently and he says, he said to me, he said that that kind of prayer is the prayer that you, you find it impossible to pray on a daily basis. He said because it's too taxing on the body. He said when I get to that level of prayer, he said the next day, he said I'm sore all over. He said my, my stomach muscles are, are sore. He said my, my, my entire body can be sore when I get to that level of prayer. And, and the reason is, is because that groaning that's too deep for words is not just taxing on you mentally and emotionally, but it's taxing on the physical body because there's something on the inside of you that is, that is coming out, that you can't control it. You, you, just, you just have to be a vessel in the hands of God. At that time, you have to be a tool in the hands of the Lord. And just let that groaning burst forth and let it come out of you. Amen. And you lose the mental faculties. Amen. Because again, from inside comes uncontrollable groaning. What is that? I'll tell you, it is the Spirit of God that is literally praying through you. And that's what we need in this day more than ever before. Can I tell you what's going to break the yoke of Mike Lawley? It's going to be the Spirit of God literally praying through you 
on the behalf of that man. Let me tell you what's going to break the yoke of Mary Lawley. That seems to have absolutely no interest in the truth of God whatsoever. It's going to be the Spirit of God literally praying through you on behalf of that individual that gets the job done. See, the old prophet said it, and I, I wasn't going to read it, but, but I think I will this morning. The old prophet said it like this. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66, verses 5 through 8. He said, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at His word. Your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake, said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy. But they shall be ashamed. The sound of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who fully repays His enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a man-child. Listen to what the Lord is saying through Isaiah. Isaiah, it is through, through, through Isaiah, God is, is trying to help His people to understand there's some things that just don't happen. There's some things that are not normal, that are not natural. He said before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. And he said in verse number 8, Who has heard such a thing? In other words, the Lord is saying, No woman gives birth without first being in labor. There is absolutely no woman that, brings, that delivers a man-child before her pain comes. And you women who have born children, you understand what God is saying through Isaiah. You that have born children, you know that you didn't deliver a child before the pains of contraction came. Amen? I remember when my wife's son was born. He was our, our firstborn. You know, and, 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 and we got to the hospital too late, you know, for them to do some things that they, they needed to do. And I'm going to tell you something. When those labor pains came, Everybody on that floor knew she was in labor. I'm telling you. I'm, I'm sitting, this was before the days that you could go in with them and hold their hand and say, and say, okay, do this now. That was before those days. You, you weren't allowed in there. They wheeled her in and shut the doors and said, you can go sit in there. And I'm going to tell you, sitting in there, I could hear her all the way back there. And God, through Isaiah, is saying, this is not normal. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? 
The, the rhetorical question is, is nobody has heard this. And then comes another question. Who has seen such things? The answer to that would be nobody. God asked the question, shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? The obvious answer is no. Then the Lord said, for as soon as Zion was in labor. Your King James Bible says, for as soon as Zion travailed. I looked up that word travail in the Hebrew, and it does mean to be in labor. For as soon as Zion was in labor. What happens when labor comes? There's pain there. What happens when, when labor hit, hits a woman who is expecting a child? Oh, there's an, there's an element of anxiety there. Oh, yes. There, there becomes stress of body. There becomes pain. The pain of labor. What is that pain of labor that God is saying that as soon as Zion, which is a metaphor, an Old Testament metaphor for the church. What is that labor that the Lord is talking about through Isaiah? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. I'll tell you what that labor is. It's exactly what Paul was talking about in, the, in Romans chapter 8. It was those groanings. It was those groanings that could not be uttered. Those groanings that were too deep for words. In that labor, in that time of travail, a person... One tends to lose all sense of time and what's happening around them. Everything around you, it is, doesn't matter. Everything, the only thing that matters is this, at this particular time is somehow giving birth spiritually to what is deep within my spirit and in my soul. Because I'm in labor. I'm in labor. And when Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Only when only in intercession is it possible to feel what Jesus felt in laying down his life. To bring a church into the world. You understand the importance of that statement? If Jesus Christ had not laid down his life, there would not be a church today. When he entered into that garden and he left his disciples and he went a stone's throw away, and he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Why was he being sorrowful and very heavy? 
It was because of me. My sin. It was because of you and your sin and the sin of the entire world. And he knew in the will of God that this is what's going to be required to birth a church. So I would contend this morning that that his groaning and his sweating great drops of blood that fell to the ground was not only because of his impending crucifixion and death and the shame that he would bear. But I do believe in that garden, the Lord Jesus Christ began to have labor pains because of a church that he was getting ready to birth. So only in intercession is it possible to feel what Jesus felt in laying his life down to bring a church into this world. Only in intercession can one really feel his passionate love for dying humanity. This prayer, this degree of intensity and agony exceeds the boundaries of human compassion and reaches into the realm of divine love and burden for a lost world. And I say again, as you stand this morning in closing, the only thing that's going to break the demonic oppression on people that you know and people that I know is to be willing to get into that place of agony and be willing to experience labor pains. For when Zion is in labor, she brings forth her children. You know, what I heard of my wife when she was in the labor room, me sitting outside all by myself until until her family came in. Just able to think and be alone what all of this means. They came in, everything changed. They came in, the nurses are down there saying, if y'all don't quieten down, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. And In my mind, Brother Thomas, I'm like, get them to leave. I can do this better without them here. But, but with all that I heard going on behind those closed doors, you know, I could wonder why would she want to do that again? But she did. That there came a point in time she's asking for another kid. And I'm thinking, you mean after all of that pain and all of that travail? Because essentially, she gave birth to that boy naturally. And I'm like, all of that pain, all of that travail, you would ask to do this again? 
Yes. Because there's something about the birth of that child that after a period of time and that body has time to heal because of the joy of that child, a mother will say, I want to do that again. I, I don't understand that. I've never born a child in the flesh. I've never experienced that pain. Brother Thomas, I've been told that the closest pain that a man could probably have to that, to that level of pain is a kidney stone. Now, I've had a kidney stone and it'll make a big man like me curl up in a fetal position and cry like a little girl. And after all of that passed, and I'm thinking, thank God that's done and thank God that's over with. Brother Thomas, I've never asked God for another one. I promise you, and I never will. Why? Because I remember that pain. I remember what it was like. I remember telling the nurse in the emergency room when she's got that little dumb question on a scale of 1 to 10, what level is your pain right now? And my response to her, I'll never forget. My pain right now is such, if you don't get me some help and you don't get it quick, I'm going to tear this entire emergency room clean apart. She's like, oh. Ushered out. Came back and gave me a shot of morphine. Never asked for that pain again because there's no joy that's associated with that. But see, one place in Scripture talks about Jesus for the joy that was set before Him. He knew there was joy coming. And for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the pain. He endured the shame. He took it all upon Himself because He knew that there was coming a day that He would look back on that and say, I'm glad I did that. I'm glad I suffered that agony. I'm glad I endured the shame and all of the pain. and Everything that's associated with it, I'm glad I did that. Because there's a church that I birthed in all of that pain and agony. And I'm going to tell you something right now. If you ever have the joy of producing spiritual children, you look back at the pain and the agony and the groanings that Paul said are too deep for words. You look back at that and you say, I'll do it again. I'll do it again. I'll do that again. Be because there's a Billy Kay that received the Holy Ghost two weeks ago and has the joy of the Lord in her today. And I'm going to tell you what, that brings me joy. That brings me joy. Seeing that birth and being part of that delivery brings me joy. And so now, now, you want to do it again? Oh, yes. Because there's a mic that needs to be born. And there's some complications in delivery. 
And so somebody needs to go to that place that is too deep for words and start bearing labor pains all over again. Because the Lord did say when Zion is in labor, she brings forth her children. This doesn't happen without labor. Even the Lord said, Oh, you, you want to have children but no labor pains? The Lord says, Who's heard such a thing? It doesn't happen. And I'm telling you, church, it doesn't happen in the church either. You don't bring forth spiritual children without pain and without the struggles of labor and that agony and that grief and that anxiety. Because when Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Every head bowed this morning. As Brother Tim begins to sing whatever is on his heart, I want us to pray. Because without this level of prayer, nothing else matters. And I ask you a question this morning. Who's willing to go there? Who's willing to go there? Who's willing this morning to say, I'll, I'll endure that pain for a mic. I'll endure that pain for a Mary. I'll endure that pain for a, a, a David that's not here this morning. I'll endure that pain that others may experience spiritual birth because the Lord said without it, you don't have children. Without it, you don't bear. And I'm asking this morning as you pray, who's willing to have that pain today? Who's willing to go there this morning? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's not flesh and blood I battle, but principalities I'm fighting for my loved ones and my family. So with my faith, Oh, yes. Who wants that this morning? Come on, listen to it again. Oh, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. It's not flesh and blood I battle. 